teaching from this evening comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And this is God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As some of you know, three months ago, our third child, Jacob Venable, was born. And so these past few months, we have been immersed in taking care of three kids for the first time of our life, and one of them an especially needy uh, three-month-old. And he is perfect. I mean, he's got two beautiful blue eyes, and his toes are perfect, and his fingers are perfect. And so I don't want to give you the wrong impression that we're not um, just immensely grateful for him and consider him to be a gift from the Lord. But because we have been so exhausted and tired taking care of this newborn and our other two children, there have been times where I have just felt like I'm at the end of my resources with this newborn. You ever felt like that, that you're at the end of your resources? Um, We've all felt like that, right? You've taken care of an aging parent or your children, or you've been burning it at both ends at work or a friendship or family member, you feel like you are at the end of your resources. And you ask, what am I to do? I feel like I have nothing left to give here. What can we do? Let me invite you tonight to look at this passage from Isaiah. Isaiah wants to reorient our hopes. He wants to reorient what you depend on away from your efforts and your wisdom and your energy level and how much strength that you think you have. And he wants to reorient your hope and what you think you can depend on around God and around the zeal of the Lord. What is God determined to do? What is he absolutely dedicated to making sure happens in this world? That's what I want to look at tonight. And a pastor by the name of Sinclair Ferguson was especially helpful to me in Thinking about this passage, I want to kind of look at it through these four names. The Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So first, Jesus is the wisdom that we need. He's the Wonderful Counselor. See that in verse 6. There's a place in the Rocky Mountains in December where there's a fresh snow on the ground. 
and there's thick clouds in the sky, and there's no sound and no light at all. It's like that all night long. And in the morning, when the first light appears, it is nearly overwhelming when the sun first comes up after an entire night of that thick darkness. And Psalm 23, a famous psalm from the Old Testament, describes life's darkness, right? That line that we all know very well, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, life is dark sometimes. And without God's mercy, right, not everyone knows the Good Shepherd. And without that shepherd from Psalm 23, there's just the valley of the shadow of death. No shepherd. And in the gloom, in the midst of the darkness, we reach for coping mechanisms. That's what Israel was doing 700 years before Jesus was born. Israel was trying to cope with the darkness that they were in the midst of. We cope with the darkness, right? You reach for your phone. Uh, You want to take that pill or you want to drink that or eat that or buy that. Coping mechanisms in the midst of the darkness. Isaiah wants to break through all our coping mechanisms with the light that he says is going to dawn in Jesus Christ and the Messiah and this wonderful counselor. It's not the coping mechanisms that we need, but it's this light, the wonderful counselor. The good news is that that's what God is zealous to do. He is passionate to do that. Christ is called the light of the world because he is the wonderful counselor. And Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be in the darkness. He knows what that's like. Mark chapter 4, it says, On the cross, darkness descended over the whole land. Mark chapter 15. Jesus experienced the darkness just like we have. Because it's those who've walked through the darkness that now have the right to speak to those who are in the midst of darkness. He's been there. He knows what it's like to feel like you're at the end of your resources. So what if we listen to him while we're in the midst of the darkness? He's the the wonderful counselor. Jesus is also the power that we need. He is the mighty God. The mighty God. Verse 4, it talks about this day of Midian, where the great army of Gideon, which began with 20,000 people, great army, was reduced down to 300 men, taking on this entire army. You can imagine the astonishment of the enemy, this great force of men, as these 300 clay pots and torches, they were smashed. And the enemy of God, he fled. He ran away in terror because of the zeal of the Lord and what he did through Gideon on that day. And the point of that story is that God's salvation works through weakness. God didn't need 20,000 soldiers. He just needed 300. God's salvation works in a way that looks weak and small. And in this passage, what does it call the Messiah? It calls him a child, a son. That's how God's zeal would work itself out. That's how God would be mighty. He would work through a child, a son. And you see it especially where it says that the government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. What's the one thing that was said to be on the Messiah's shoulders in the New Testament? The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ 
holding up the government of the world. And if, if the cross of Jesus, if Jesus is, is strong enough and mighty enough to be this mighty God, to hold up the government of the world, don't you think he's strong enough to hold up your life? Whose shoulders are your children on tonight? Whose shoulders are your parents on as, as they get older? Whose shoulders is your career on? Isaiah wants you to know, wants me to know, that Jesus, the Messiah, is the mighty God. And the zeal of the Lord will do these things. And the government will be on his shoulders because he is mighty. Stop trying to put it on your own shoulders. The cross has made us not guilty before God. The cross means that the power of God is at work to redeem the world. What is God zealous to do? To guarantee the freedom of the weak, to the tired and to the worn out, to the bottomed out. Our friends and our parents, our children, they're not on our timetable. God's zeal, it is at work in the world on his timetable, not ours. And we can count on it to rest in the zeal of the Lord when we feel like we have no resources in and of ourselves. Jesus is the power that we need. He is mighty God. Jesus is also the love that we need. He is everlasting Father. Or I'm campus minister at UAB with RUF. There is another ministry there called Crew. And um, wonderful couple, Wes and Monica Skinner, they have been longing and praying and waiting to adopt a baby for not months or years, but nearly a decade. They've been hoping and praying to adopt a baby. November 30th, this month, Lord willing, becomes official. These two beautiful girls become theirs. The amazing thing of the gospel and the zeal of the Lord is that he gives us what we all most need, which is to be adopted into God's family, to experience the love of God. The things that people do for the love of God, um, the messes that people make, because all they want is to feel loved. The life of someone lived for 10, 20, 30 years, every decision they ever make done so that you will like me. This is the longing that people have. Jesus' name reveals our greatest need to be adopted. And sometimes you will hear against Christianity, you know, you, you silly Christians. See, this is your problem. You have this psychological neurosis. You want to be loved by daddy. And so you've invented this God because you want a God that wants to love you and take care of you. You just invented him. However, I think... Christians, in the final analysis, when you add it all up, Christians are the only ones that have any rational basis for the love of parents for their children. Only Christians can say, it is because there is this God who is, who is real and exists, who loves me and cares for me. And that is why I can know that to love my children is a good thing. Because, you know, science can describe the love of parents for their children. Science can describe it. But science could never say that that is a good thing. You should love your children. Only Christians have a rational basis for that. Because our Heavenly Father loves us. And because of sin, we 
we want to run from the love of our Heavenly Father. We're all like the prodigal son, right? Running from the love of God. God has given us our clothes and and our food and and our cars and our jobs and everything that we've ever had, and yet we run from Him. We turn our backs from Him. We don't want anything to do with God in and of ourselves. But the amazing thing is that Jesus is saying, I've come to do something on the cross. Isaiah wants us to see 700 years after Isaiah would live, the Messiah would come to die on the cross and rise from the dead so that we can know the everlasting Father, whose love is everlasting. We all know what it's like to be far from home, like the prodigal son. To be far from home, overwhelmed by guilt and shame, and to feel like, I don't belong in the family anymore because of what I've done. But the amazing thing is that Jesus Christ has been there too. Though he, was a, though he was righteous and holy and never sinned, always loved God, always loved man, what was his cry on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what it was like to feel far from God, as if God's love had left him totally and completely, because the sin of the world was laid on Jesus. And here tonight... If, if, if you're not a Christian, if you, if you feel like you have left the faith, I, I, I want to talk to you in particular for just a second. What if God wants to bring you home? And I know that sounds just a teeny bit cheesy, just, just to say out loud. But God's word, God's promise is that he has made you for himself. And your heart will be restless until you rest in God the everlasting Father. What if Christ tonight wants you to believe in Him who left His home, left the comfort of heaven, was forsaken on the cross so that sinners could go home, find the love of God again? What if God wants to do that in your life tonight? Jesus is the love that we need. He is the everlasting Father. He is also the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. He's the peace that we need. I was listening to NPR this past week, and of course there was a lot of stories um, about the, the controversy going on, about some of the recent fall of some of the most gifted movie producers and directors and actors and comedians, as um, the, the truth has come to light and exposed the double life going on uh, with these men that they were not um, just famous, but that they were really predators. And the story I was listening to with NPR, uh, one of the brave women who'd come forward, I mean, one of the army, a part of the army of women who've come forward to, to tell the truth, she finished telling her story about the satisfaction she was getting, about the truth finally coming to light, and about the fact that this man was finally going to get some justice and though that wasn't going to completely right the situation, she was reflecting on that that was going to be satisfying that this was happening. And I'm not trying to pick on this NPR reporter at all. I'm I'm sure they're a great reporter. But after the woman had told her story, the NPR reporter closes the segment with something like this. As more and more men live in fear of being outed for what they've done, 
Perhaps we can finally live in a society where this doesn't happen anymore. And I thought to myself, I'm driving down the car, oh no, that's not it. Don't draw that conclusion. That's not the conclusion that follows from the the story that you just told. Because we delude ourselves if we think we can create a peaceful society based on fear of punishment, based on the rewarding of good behavior. We, We delude ourselves if we think that will bring peace. It's just another coping mechanism in the midst of darkness, in the midst of gloom, in the midst of sadness. We cope with it by saying, maybe we can do something to finally make a peaceful society. Maybe we can finally fix this earth. It's just another way to cope. Normally, peace is just a dream, something that we dream of. We pretend there's peace when there's no peace. What Isaiah wants us to see is that what if the Messiah, what if Jesus Christ has done something to make peace not just something we can dream about, but a reality? What if Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to put an end to violence and injustice and shame and guilt in a way that is real and that is solid? Isaiah, we're looking at chapter 9, but later on in Isaiah, he's going to say this, looking forward about about the Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus became our peace. He's the prince of peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Many of the verbs in this passage we're looking at are in the past tense. Why would Isaiah do that? Isaiah is looking far, far in the future, 700 years. But he's using past tense verbs because God has shown him that this thing that the Messiah will do is so certain, is so uh, finished in the mind of God, that it's, it's, it's like it's in the past tense, Isaiah says. It's like it's already happened because the zeal of the Lord is what's behind it. To that voice in your head that in quiet desperation, when nobody's around, says, I need peace in my life. Where is the peace? I need peace. The zeal of the Lord whispers back, I have given you a prince of peace. You will never find peace trying to fix this yourself. You will only find peace by looking away from yourself, away from your family, away from your efforts, your career. You will only find peace by looking away from the the stack that you keep in your mind of all the bad things you've ever done and all the good things you've ever done. You've got to look away from that to find peace. To the prince of peace, Isaiah says. Justice. Peace. That this all somehow ends well for us. 
It is dependent on God's zeal, not yours. And God's zeal does demand that we place our futures in His hands, in the hands of Jesus Christ, in the hands of the Prince. We have to place our futures, or all we have is the value of the shadow of death. There is no shepherd if we do not place our hands in the hands of this Prince. One pastor I listened to made this suggestion. I'll make it tonight. Red Mountain Church. What if what we need to do is to reread this passage in the first person? To me, a child is born. To me, a son is given. And the government of my life shall be upon his shoulders. He is my wonderful counselor. He is my mighty God. My everlasting Father. He is my Prince of Peace. Aren't you glad that your future does not depend on your resources, on your strength, on your zeal, but on the zeal of the Lord? Would you pray with me? And let's pray that God would make this real in our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you uh, weak and weary and sick and sore, and our hearts are like glass and are easily broken. And we do ask you to meet us in the midst of our weakness with your, your love, everlasting Father, in the midst of our foolishness with your wonderful Counselor. Meet us in the midst of, of weakness with, with your great power, Heavenly Father. We do look to you for our futures, and we pray that Those of us uh, who that does not seem real to at all tonight, some of us here tonight, um, you don't seem real to us, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would make yourself real to us, open our eyes so that we may see you, either for the first time or for the thousandth time, Lord, as we draw near to you, draw near to us, Lord Jesus, in your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.